Good evening, everyone. Um, I'll pray as you come to the Bible. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father and God of all comfort, I pray you would comfort us this evening with the comfort that we have in the Gospel. Uh, Father, those who are terminally ill, we, we want to know how to care for them well. And Father, hearing of their pain and knowing their pain in our, in our own lives and in our families is, um, is devastating. And so we pray, Father, that we would be a community that thinks well uh, about how we care for those who are suffering towards the end of their life. Uh, Father, please give me helpful words to say. Uh, give all of us uh, the courage of our convictions and, and tender hearts uh, for those who are suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, it's true, isn't it, that sometimes, you know, when the Bible pitches death, it often pitches it like a grave, like an abyss that you would sort of go into and when you're lost. And uh, it's, it's never a place that you'd want to go to. Uh, it's horrible. Its description is, is awful. And then you hear a passage like that. And you hear the description of someone like Job. And he's lying on the ground and he feels like he's at ease. And he's thinking about dying and he's actually thinking that he would enter into it with gladness and he'd be rejoicing. It would sort of like be, you know, when you climb into bed at night and you've had a long, awful day and you're under the warm covers and you just go, oh, I'm glad that's over. And you read Job and that's exactly what he's saying about what he feels about his life. And we know people either in our own lives or certainly in our society who, when suffering with terminal illness, they, that's exactly how they feel. They feel like this. I'll show you what Job says again. He asks God, he says, why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I sigh when food is put before me. Do you know someone like that? Or my groans pour out like water. For, I, for the thing I feared has overtaken me and, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be still. I have no rest. For trouble comes. And then he questions God and he says this. He says, why is light given to one burdened with grief? And why, God, did you give life to those whose existence is just bitter? Who wait for death, but it does not come. And search for it more than hidden treasure. Sometimes people long for death and they search for it like treasure, but they can't find it. And it's awful. Their suffering is awful. They just wish that they would die and they're, they're looking for it, but it, it will not come and it won't come. And when you read stuff like that, like in Job, it's just that's the utter despair of the Bible when faced with a life full of suffering. And it, it is great, isn't it, knowing that the Bible doesn't pretend away the suffering that's very real in the lives of very real people and that it's enormous. The Bible never does that. And here is God himself in his word describing through the mouth of the guy, a guy named Job exactly what it's like for people when they search for death and they wish they could find it, but they can't. Death would be like hidden treasure to them. And I know that when I hear passages like that, which Emma read very well, and isn't it great when the Bible is read like that? And 
you, you hear of pain like that and you hear of people in your family or you know it who are suffering intolerable illnesses and any argument against euthanasia just seems unbeatable. It seems crazy to argue against it. Um, I know that most recently in our family, um, a couple of years ago, my nana died of a very aggressive uh, pancreatic cancer and I can remember us going through the deliberations as a family of how best to care for her and it's really difficult and for some of you you're going through this exactly right now for some of you this has been a very recent thing and the reason why this topic is really really hard is that as a society we we're committed to comfort and the total absence of pain that's called living in the western world we're into everything comfortable we never like any pain whatsoever Uh, we're also a pretty youth obsessed and death denying culture and so we don't come across death very often Uh, the first time i saw a dead body was when my grandfather died seven years ago. So I'd managed to get 29 years through life and never seen death before. And it was shocking and it was awful and it was wrong and it was, and the image will never leave my mind. But often lots of us who are young, we don't, we're not prepared for death because we've never seen it. And not only that, if someone we have, we do love, is in pain like that and they're searching for death like treasure, then we just think, well, maybe euthanasia would be a good idea. And so the question that I want us to ask tonight is, how is it, how do we really care for the terminally ill um, in their vulnerability, in their distress? And sometimes we have to make these decisions at the end of a really long illness. Um, Sometimes it comes up very fast. And often, you know, when we're really in deep despair that's not the time to make good decisions because we're too emotional and we can't think properly and so it's good to think now if this isn't a real thing for you because in a few years time or whenever it might be this will be and in grief it's very hard to think um just this week a bill that would have allowed euthanasia to hit the news to be pub to be law in new south wales failed in the new south wales parliament so it was voted against in the upper house so 23 voted against and 13 voted for it. And so it's not law, it's not legal anywhere in Australia. Uh, but just because it's not legal, that doesn't mean that people won't again and again and again try and introduce euthanasia. And there may be some of us here who think, well, perhaps it's a good idea. There's some of you who may think it, it isn't. I want us to talk about it. Should it be law? Should we allow this to happen? How do we really care? Well, one of the, reason, one of the reasons I brought this up is that one of the ways that you work out whether Christians are fair income, of whether we're into following Jesus or just carrying his name, is how we care for those who are vulnerable. Jesus' brother said this, remember from last week, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What he means by that is being stained by the world is not caring about the vulnerable, not caring about orphans and widows in their distress, not caring about anyone who is vulnerable, but just doing the worldly thing, which is basically looking after the rich and the famous and the powerful and the the popular. We want to care for those who are vulnerable. But that still doesn't answer what we're meant to do uh, for those who long for death like treasure. What do we do? We need to be clear, what is euthanasia? Now, euthanasia comes from two Greek words. It just means good death. Now, whether it's good or not, that's up for us to decide. But what happens is it's when a terminally ill patient, person, knows what they're doing and they deliberately ask their doctor to end their life there and then. 
when they otherwise would not die. They have a terminal illness and they say, I would like you to end my life now. Now, it's very interesting that the Bible knows deeply and acutely and unashamedly about the power of human suffering and the effect that it has on our lives and the lives of the people that we love. And yet it never refers to anything remotely like euthanasia. And so why is it, you may be wondering, why is it as Christians, when we hear powerful arguments like Adam Bant made, why is it that as Christians we opposed to allowing patients to end their own life? I mean, it's their life, some might say. Um, and why do we not want ourselves or our loved ones to have that choice at the end of our life? Why do we not want that? Well, there are arguments against euthanasia. There are reasons why we don't like it. Um, firstly, and I know that there are doctors and nurses here, and please come and correct me afterwards if I get this incorrect. I know that there are palliative care doctors here. But it is true, one of the reasons why euthanasia is unnecessary is because there have been advances in palliative care that make assisted death unnecessary. Because most of the reasons why most of us want euthanasia to be true is because we hate to see people suffering and we would love for their pain to be alleviated and so we think that euthanasia would be the option and yet palliative care which isn't just at the end of someone's life palliative care is when doctors and nurses care for people both their pain um, whether it's physical and emotional um, it's psychological help as well as pain management help people at the end of their life to alleviate their suffering so that they can die with less pain. Now, advances in that care mean that if doctors are trained properly and using the right techniques, then they can well and truly alleviate the pain of the vast majority of patients in their dying days. It's true. It's also a total myth that morphine accelerates the death of patients. Some people would say, well, Patients get accelerated doses of morphine and then that kills them anyway. And so basically euthanasia is happening now and so we should just make it as law. That's not true. Morphine used properly doesn't accelerate people's death. It doesn't slow it down either. If doctors are injecting too much morphine, it's because they're doing so illegally and they are murdering their patients. You don't need to use morphine in that way to alleviate the pain of people. It's true. But also, do you think if we introduced laws that favoured euthanasia, do you think the government would continue to put money into palliative care and caring for those who are dying? Or do you think the option of euthanasia would mean that people would st they'd stop putting money into that? Of course they would. But as Christians, we've got a slightly different answer to this. And that is, and you may not think of it quite like this at first, is that we actually know the benefits of suffering. Now, that's easy for someone who's not suffering, by the way. It's easy to say that. Yeah? But when we suffer, it actually gives us an opportunity to grow in character, in perseverance, in hope. As Christians, we don't enjoy suffering. That's called insanity. But actually, mate, actually, is that quite right? Paul says this in Romans 5. He says, But we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. When we suffer, 
God often uses it to draw us closer to him. He changes our character and he makes us hope for heaven. The only reason why we rejoice in any suffering is because it draws us closer to him. And I know some of you here know exactly that. The suffering that you're going through right now is drawing you closer to God. Now, it may be that people who want euthanasia, what they don't want, they're not just saying, I want the right to end my life. They're actually saying, I would like the right to avoid dying altogether, to avoid all pain, to avoid all suffering. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Suffering draws us closer to God. But why else do we not want euthanasia? Well, I think, as one agree, that legalising euthanasia would totally change the way that we relate to the elderly and the terminally ill. Do you think that's true? I'll ask you this question. Do you think the attitude of our society would change if we had a law that allowed us to treat the elderly and the terminally ill like that? Of course it would. So instead of us thinking that it's absolute privilege to care for the elders of our community, who, after all, they passed down all of our history... We're not very good in the West at honouring those who are older than us. Like We generally think that as soon as people can stop doing stuff, they become useless. It's a very Western individualistic sort of way of thinking. But the elders of our community are precious. But our attitude would change to them, wouldn't it? Imagine old Luther, okay, lying in a hospital bed. I don't know how old I'll be. Maybe I won't. And I'm resisting euthanasia. And the question to me might become, hey, old Luther, what right do you have to keep living, old man? Like, your time is over, old man. Like, the resources that are being used to keep you alive, couldn't they be used for someone else, old man? Old Luther, why don't you just hurry up and leave us? Why don't you get out of here? Is that really how we want to relate to the elders of our community? Do we want to treat them like that? I mean, doctors... Since, what is it, um, the 5th century BC, when, I didn't know this, but apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, doctors, but apparently you say the Hippocratic Oath, and been saying it for two and a half thousand years at every doctor's graduation, and part of that Hippocratic Oath is the declaration that you will not assist someone to end their life. To change this law would overturn medical ethics for the last two and a half thousand years. Other, other doctors have just said, basically, it's hard enough to get older people to come to hospital. Could you see an older person coming to hospital if they thought their doctor would subtly convince them to end their own life? I don't think so. And doctors don't want to do it. I have not met a doctor yet who thinks that this is a good idea. They want to care and they want to comfort. They do not want to kill. It's not how we treat the old and the ill. I'll tell you what, do you know that Lenore's grandma, Dodie, uh, Lenore nick- nicknamed her Dodie, and we've ne- her name, her name's Rain Ganane, which is a very unfortunate name, but um, and she knows that, so she's happily accepted Dodie, and uh, but Dodie's 102, and uh, she finally went into uh, uh, nursing home care at 99, just a couple of months before her 100th birthday, and she's a wonderful uh, old lady. And do you know what she always says whenever we visit her in the nursing home? She says, I, I, I never want to be a burden. I never want to be a burden on the family. And it is tiring to care for her. 
If you ask Lenore's mum, Jane, honestly, is it hard caring for your mother, going to visit her every day and taking her to the hospital when needed and finding the little things, finding a car spot and doing all the things that are difficult to care for someone? Is, is that difficult? Yes, it is. But that's our privilege as a family, isn't it? We would never, ever, ever want Dodie to feel or anyone else who is terminally ill that her life is a burden, and so she would request euthanasia, not because she wants it, but she just doesn't want to be a burden to us. Right? Doesn't God say this in Galatians? Doesn't he say, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ? The way that we know that we've understood what loving Jesus looks like is how we carry the burdens for other people, because Jesus carried our burden to the cross. We never, ever want Dodie to feel like she is a burden. And we never want a law to be in place that would encourage her to feel like that she's a burden. Because she's not. It's our privilege to care for her, even though it's hard. And I'm sure you'd agree with your family. You see, the vulnerable, they're also put under threat by legalising euthanasia. Um, Look what uh, Proverbs says here. A proverb says this, it says, Don't rob a poor man because he's poor, and don't crush the oppressed at the gate, for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. In the Bible, God is always clear that the rich are not to take advantage of the poor, that the powerful are not to take advantage of the weak. And there's constantly laws uh, throughout the laws of Israel that protect the vulnerable. Um, now, in recent years, I don't know if you realise this, but the Netherlands was one of the first countries to introduce euthanasia. I think it was 2006. It may have been earlier than that. And do you know that thousands of people in the Netherlands now carry around cards that they wear around their necks that say, do not euthanise me? Why would they do that? You should do nothing to end my life prematurely. And they wear it around their neck. Why? Because it seems like people are worried. I mean, surveys say in Australia that 85% of people think that euthanasia is a good idea. Except, whenever you go down social class and up in age, the enthusiasm for euthanasia goes down very quickly. The poorer you are, the older you are, and if you are disabled, those people do not think that euthanasia is a good idea. Now, does that seem strange? Wouldn't an older person be the person who was going to benefit from a swift and painless death? What Wouldn't they be the first person to be supportive of something like this? No, it seems like life is more precious the closer you are to its end, it seems. I think sometimes we want to introduce laws about euthanasia for our sake, not for the sake of those who are actually in pain. Um, we need to protect the vulnerable against our greed. Do, do you think if a law like this was introduced, that money-hungry relatives wouldn't use it as an opportunity to ask their parents to end their life in order to get the inheritance? Of course they would. And if you don't think they would, it's because you've got a dear, soft heart, right, that's too naive. The people of Australia would kill off their parents and their grandparents in order to pay off the mortgage. And you know it, and I know it, and we need to protect the vulnerable. We do. But it's not just protecting people from their greedy relatives. Um, 
What about the profoundly disabled? Well, what should we do there? There's there's a video where ethicist Peter Singer says what he thinks we ought to do. Uh, Check this out. Chang Lim. Uh, Mr. Singer, in the past you attracted negative attention for your support of euthanizing physically or mentally disabled babies, if that is the, also the decision of the parents. Is this still your view, and doesn't it basically encourage people with disabilities to be less valued and less accepted by human society? Look, uh, it is basically what you said is, is still my view, that, that in the case of an infant born with severe disabilities, uh, the doctors and parents ought to consult as to what they think is the best for the child. They do that anyway now, and very often what happens in the case of a child born with a severe disability is they decide not to treat the child. So the child dies anyway, but it dies often rather slowly because there's a a weight, uh, or maybe the respirator is pulled off and the child dies somewhat quicker. Um, But, uh, you know, I don't think anybody really thinks that in every case, no matter how severely disabled the baby is, no matter what the parents think, that child should be treated to the maximum with all the medical technology we have so that that child lives as long as possible. But, but are you actually supporting an intervention to Yes, I, I, I think once you decide that it's better that the child should die, which effectively is what doctors do decide now when they say we're not going to treat this child because of its severe disability, once you make that decision, that's the important decision. Is it better for this child and for this family if the child lives or dies? If you decide that it's better that the child dies and therefore you're not going to treat the child, I think it's more humane to make sure that the child dies quickly now rather than to let nature take its Let's course. Let's hear from the rest of the panel on this, Jayshree Kulkarni. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with, uh, with Peter, unfortunately, and there are some really horrible situations that do occur where it is uh, not compatible for any kind of quality of life in the newborn uh, or, or a bit later on, but it, it, is, it is a really difficult, difficult decision. Once that decision is made, then part of medicine is about easing the suffering, uh, easing pain and suffering. And pain and suffering in a, in a very prolonged death process is something that also has to be eased. See from Helen Coon. Uh, well, look, this sounds to me awfully like a, a very slippery slope here that we're uh, starting to go down. Uh, I certainly uh, would be very uneasy with these um, life and death decisions being made uh, by doctors based on uh, often what you do not know about a, a newborn child. Um, I do think that uh, all life is, uh, is very sacred and I certainly wouldn't support uh, the sorts of interventions that have been talked about tonight. Uh, I realise that it's very difficult to have um, a universal answer uh, for every potential case, but I think the central organising principle here that you must not depart from is that life is sacred and should be preserved at all costs. The gentleman with his hand up there. We'll come to you in a moment, sir. Let's just hear from Peter Garrett. Uh, well, look, I'm sympathetic to, uh, to what Helen Coonan has said, although I do recognise that uh, we're at that really difficult junction mm. point between mm. utility, compassion and possibility. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about this debate is that sometimes you'll hear from parents who've had seriously disabled kids and it's been a very challenging uh, exercise, the amount of care and effort and time that goes in, and quite often expense as well, but they wouldn't have had it any other way and they think that there is sufficient quality of life in that. And to me, it's the same argument as the euthanasia argument. There's another component to it which I find quite troubling, and that is that at the moment our principle, it's a Hippocratic principle, it's a principle I think generally that life is sacred, and yet if you're starting to mediate that question, 
either on the basis of information or means or otherwise, you're reposing a great deal of trust in the decision makers at that point in time. And for me, that's a very difficult step to take. Let's just hear... Now, I, I never thought that I'd agree with anything Peter Garrett says, but um, there you go. I happen to agree with that. And um, isn't it true what he said? And he put it really well. Um, I don't know if you've ever um, seen Stella Young. Uh, Stella Young's uh, not a Christian. Uh, she's a comedian and a disability uh, activist. And she says this commenting on the views of Peter Singer. She said um, she has um, a degenerative disorder that means that her bones uh, break all the time. She said, well, I won't uh, pretend that my life has been all beer and Skittles. She said, I've had many fractures as a child and continue to have them now. My parents and siblings found this challenging as well. No one enjoys seeing their child in physical or emotional pain. Still, I don't believe that my life has involved suffering a term Singer uses a lot to describe lives like mine. Uh, she also said in that interview, she said, I would have been euthanised if uh, the law was put in place. Uh, we know. Now, of, of course, no, none of us would like to be born with a disability. That is true, right? But none of us have the right to decide what is a life worth living. Just because it's different to our life doesn't mean that it's not a life worth living. That's not true. And it's also impossible for us to know what the life of a child with a disability will look like into the future. Doctors cannot predict with absolute accuracy what will happen. And even if they could, it's not us, for us to decide that their life is not worthy of living just because we would find it difficult to live it. The vulnerable are under threat by a law like this. And parents who are caring for a child with a disability, they don't need the subtle or not so subtle encouragement of a society like ours to end the life of their child because we introduce a law like euthanasia. You know what involuntary euthanasia of a disabled child who cannot make the decision for themselves is called, don't you? Murder. That's what it's called. And 85% of Australians very interestingly think that euthanasia is a good idea, but only 2% ask for it. Why is that? Because when we're at our most vulnerable, we end up deciding that it's not a good idea. Now, not, not everyone is going to share this view, right? Lots of people are going to say, I would like to have the right to end my life. It's my life. And not having this law, they will be disappointed to not have this law. But in the end, as Christians, we've got to err on the side of protecting the vulnerable, and that means caring for those who cannot care for themselves. Why do we think like this? Well, it's because of the gospel. Right? Doesn't the gospel remind us? It reminds us this that we're not meant to die. God created us for life, not death. The only reason we die is because as humanity, we've rebelled against God, we've sinned against him. Our death is a judgment for our rebellion against God. That's why we die. And Jesus, in his resurrection, he's overturned death. I mean, Paul says this triumphantly in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There is a guarantee, and his name is Jesus, that one day he will reign in his heavenly city, 
and he will create a physical heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, and we will live there with our resurrected bodies, and there will be no more cancer, and there will be no more pain, and there will be no more illness, and there will be no more death. But until then, in the meantime, we will die. The promise of the resurrection only comes after our death. And at the moment, death has a grip on humanity. It does. We will die. And in the meantime, Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, he has brought us back. If you're a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian, that we've died with Christ, that we've been raised with him, and that our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. Our life is a gift, and it's not ours to give away. Our lives belong to him. And so, like Helen Coonan said, life is sacred. We believe in the sanctity of human life, that we're made in the image of God, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and it's not ours to take our life. But we don't see Jesus face to face yet, and death still reigns, and we won't experience the glorious resurrection that Paul talks about until Jesus comes again. Now, what does that mean when we're faced with death? Well, it does mean that we don't expect that our life will be preserved forever and at all costs, because we know that that can't happen. And as humans, we're made to live, and we expect that doctors, when we go to hospital, are going to work as hard as they can to continue to fight for our life as long as they can, but we also trust that they've got the wisdom and they've got the expertise to know when the battle is over and that we should stop fighting. And when the battle is lost, the ethical thing to do could be to withdraw treatment, to stop receiving treatment that would otherwise keep us alive. Now, withdrawal of treatment is very different to euthanasia. Stopping treatment is saying that things ought to take their course. I'm leaving my life in the hands of my God and allowing things to happen as they will. Euthanasia is saying no to the life that God has given us and asking it to be taken away. They're very, very different things. Very different things. Withdrawal of treatment sometimes means taking away the thing that is otherwise keeping uh, someone alive. Um, um, I remember with my nana two years ago, I can remember my mum ringing me on the phone in absolute tears and she said, Nana doesn't want to have any more chemotherapy. And we, know what that, we knew what that meant. Nana was tired of fighting. And she just said, I just, it's just too hard. And turning off life support or stopping chemotherapy or whatever it might be, might be one of the toughest things that we ever have to be involved in with a family member. Um, David Smith, he, he uses an illustration to explain this, of this tension that we live in. And um, he says it's sort of like being the host of a good party. I don't know if you've ever hosted a party. See if you can relate to this. He says, a couple invite friends to dinner. I want you to picture this. The food and drink are pleasant. It's a very polite way, just illustration, okay? The conversation bubbles at this party. And the good host is hospitable and courteous to his guest, no matter what shifts his mood. But there comes a time when the party winds down. You know when that happens? A time to acknowledge that the evening is over. At that point, not easily determined by clock or conversation, the good host does not press his guest to stay, but lets him go. Indeed, he may signal that it's actually acceptable to leave. 
A good host will never be sure of his timing and will never kick out his guest. His jurisdiction over the guest is limited to taking care and permitting departure. Basically, that's a nice way of saying, if you're hosting a party, there's two things you should never do. You have people around your house and it's 8 o'clock at night, you don't just kick them out and say, oh, right, right, time to go, see you later. You ever been to someone's place like that? No, it's a bit rude. Also, it's really rude if you're the host, and you know the party's winding down and people are sort of wanting to leave. You've sort of got to give them permission to go. It's okay to go now. It's, it's, it's okay to leave. And, and the person who hangs on to their guests, don't leave my party, is rude. You know that, right? <laughs> Some of you made this mistake. Okay. He uses it to describe a very situ- serious situation about when we might decide to withdraw treatment. What he's saying is, is that it's hard to know when the time to give up is there. But sometimes it's the right thing to acknowledge that death is coming. We don't kick someone out, but we do allow them to leave. Now, when might we do that? When might we stop treatments? Well, sometimes we would stop treatments on ourselves or those that we love when they're no longer useful. So, for example, sometimes when when people are getting a treatment, it used to be useful, but then in their, basically in the latter stages of the cancer or whatever illness that they're going through, the treatment that they were having before is no longer useful anymore. That is, when, it's not when someone's terminally ill. You can be terminally ill for months or years, uh, but this is when someone is irretrievably dying. They are dying and they will die and they will die soon. And sometimes our persistent efforts to cure someone when, when they're irretrievably dying is not the best way uh, to care for them. Refusing a treatment is exactly that, refusing a treatment. It's saying yes to life, but it may be shorter. It's not saying no to life that euthanasia is. It's okay to allow someone to die. Uh, We also may refuse a treatment that's excessively burdensome. Uh, For example, uh, life is not our God, yeah? So we don't have to hold on to our life no matter what the cost. Uh, we can actually refuse a treatment that's excessively difficult uh, to go through. My nana did just that. Uh, she was receiving chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. Her, her, there was no quality of life. She was sick all the time, and there was, she could hardly have the strength to even have a conversation with us. Um, she decided to stop her chemotherapy. For the next three or four weeks, um, we were able to talk to her. Uh, her pain was dealt with, and she was able to live out the next three or four weeks before she died. That's her choice to make. That's not euthanasia. That's just allowing things to take their course, withdrawing someone's treatment. Now, it wouldn't have been okay if she said, end my life today but it was okay for her to say, I don't want the chemo anymore. It's her life to live. She doesn't have to have a life that's continued with all of the costs that go with that. We can say no to medical intervention. Now, sometimes in all of this, we would love to think that we'd always be true to our convictions, yeah? That we'd always be strong and Christian and and all, all of this. But in our grief and in our pain, sometimes that just isn't the case. We cling to life 
at all costs. We forget that there's a life to come. We forget that Jesus has promised us a resurrection hope. We think that humans will never die, that the medical profession has conquered death. Right? We lose the power of our convictions. And Paul knew the temptation that that sometimes happens. Uh, and that's why he said this in, um, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, We don't, do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died. So you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We grieve differently because we have hope. Uh, Charles Wesley was once asked, 18th century evangelical, uh, lots of doctors had seen Christians die in that century. And this particular doctor said to Charles Wesley, he said this, he said, most people die for fear of dying, but I've never met people like your Christians. He said that none of them are afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. And he said, that's right, our people die well, Christians. But you know what? That's not always true. Not all of us have the courage of our convictions when we really need it. Sometimes even Christians will face death and go, I don't want this, I want to live and I want to live forever, and they're terrified and they're afraid, and that's okay. God knows our hearts. He doesn't judge us for what we think in our final moment. He knows what we believe about Jesus. But also it means that we may be really concerned for the eternal destiny of our loved ones. And so what that happens, doctors need to know this, is that Christians will often push and push because we want our families to make peace with God. And so we'll rationally push for extra time and we'll forcefully push for extra time and we'll ask doctors to do things that they think is totally irrational and that won't actually help but we'll push for extra time because we love our family and we want them to make our peace with God. And this is really tough. And uh, can I just say a quick word as I finish to the doctors and nurses that are here? And I love you very much, right? But can I say that telling the truth at times like this is often a really hard thing to do? Do you know that as my grandmother was dying, my other grandmother, my auntie didn't tell all of her siblings the truth about her mother's illness. And so my grandmother died much more quickly than anyone thought she would because my auntie was keeping the truth away from the rest of the family. Why did she do that? Because in her grief, she couldn't tell her mum what was happening and she couldn't even tell her siblings what was happening. Now that is, that's understandable, but we've got to tell each other the truth. But that said, can I say... This is why we need to pray for our doctors and nurses. Because I've got to say that some of that technical word-filled bluntness um, that some health professionals use around death just won't do. Um, You know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes doctors and nurses do not take seriously the fact that someone, the awesomeness, that someone is dying here. And sometimes... It may be the tenth time in the day that they've dealt with someone like this. But this each individual family needs their love and their support and the truth delivered in a way that doesn't actually remove the patient's will to live. Now, I say that as someone who doesn't have to do it, so I love you all. right? But our doctors and nurses, they need our prayers because they are caring for people on the front line and often the way that they deliver the truth is not the best. Uh, We need to speak the truth in love.
Because this side of the resurrection, death reigns. And I don't think, and I think as a community, we should not give people the option to die, in other words, of taking their own life in euthanasia, but sometimes we need to realise that the battle is lost and withdrawing treatment is the Christian thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And some will want their right to die, some will want euthanasia to be law, and I'm sad for them that they'll find this difficult that it's not, but we need to protect the vulnerable and to introduce a euthanasia law would not protect the vulnerable. Because in the end, we do not abandon people to death. But sometimes we have to let people go. Uh, we need to hold that tension. Why don't I pray? <clears throat> uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, I know that there are brothers and sisters of mine in this room at the moment who uh, are thinking about about parents or grandparents whom uh, they have already lost. Uh, Father, I know that there are people in this room who are thinking about parents or grandparents or friends or aunties or uncles who are terminally ill and are finding that uh, very difficult. I, I pray, Father, you would comfort them with your love for them in the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a community that protects the vulnerable Father, we know that some people will find it difficult to not have the right to end their own life. But also we know, Father, that we need to care for those who cannot care for themselves. And so we pray, Father, that you would continue to uh, see that governments do not introduce uh, such a law into Australia as has been introduced in other countries. And also, Father, we pray that as we face our own death and the death of our loved ones, that when the battle is lost that you would give us the courage of our convictions to look to the life that's to come, to look to the glorious resurrection and to uh, realise when we need to entrust uh, the very short rest of our life um, to your care. Uh, Father, we pray. I, I know that there will be differences in, in the way that we think about this across our congregation and so I pray, Father, you would help us tonight to deal with each other uh, with love and with care. And uh, Father, I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.